Welcome to the special presentation of St. Gabriel Catholic Radio, the 2021 Catholic Social Services Breakfast with the Bishop. We now go to Rachel Lustig, the president of Catholic Social Services here in the Diocese of Columbus. Here's Rachel. Good morning, everyone. It is so nice to see you all. It is really good to be together. I I certainly understand our safety constraints, but it is a blessing to see your faces. And when I say that, I really mean your eyes. I just want you to know that I'm um, I'm so grateful for these crow's feet that I've got because they can show you that I'm smizing at you every morning. I want to say welcome. Welcome, Bishop Brennan. Welcome to our clergy and religious, our elected officials and community leaders, our esteemed partners, and our new friends. On behalf of the Catholic Social Services team, in particular our board, our staff, and volunteers, I'm honored to welcome you here this morning. I want to start by saying thank you. I don't need to tell you that this was a hard year. 2020 was to be our 75th anniversary. We had intended to have a celebration. And instead, we were called to honor our legacy by rising to the challenges of our day, just like those who had gone before us had. We served more people, many for the first time. We expanded our services we took on more intense challenges. And you were there with us. And for that, we are so grateful. You gave us the courage to do what we needed to do, to serve our clients as safely as possible. We could feel you there. We trusted in your support. And we, the CSS team, are so thankful And we will continue to work every day to be worthy of your trust. Today, as a part of our presentation, we're going to bring together two words that you don't often hear together. One word is very positive, generative, almost playful. And the second word is often considered negative, overwhelming, one that we prefer to avoid. The first word can best be illustrated by my five-year-old niece, Olivia. And here she is. The illustrative power in the picture is in the picture that she's drawn. The picture says, my octagon is a chicken unicorn. Of course it is. What else would it be? The first word that we're talking about is imagination. The word imagination fills you with hope, with childlike wonder. Olivia reminds us that we have the freedom to imagine what is possible. Imagination is one of my favorite ways to think about God, a God of imagination. Because if I'm mindful for just a split second, I can just that blueberry syrup. What an incredible imagination our creator has. A deep breath, so much power in this. 
much less the wonder that we get by looking at the mountains, an ocean, a new baby, life. At the hardest times that I have, it is the God of imagination that I rely on most heavily. The God of imagination who I can rely on for strength that I didn't know that I had, for a hopefulness that seems to come out of nowhere, for the ability to see a path that I didn't know was possible. Our clients show that level of strength regularly. They show that power of the human spirit. In so many ways, they deserve a standing ovation for the burdens that they carry. And often, although not always, for the grace with which they carry it. As we think about where our world is today, the challenges that we face as individuals and as families, as a community, as a country, and even as a global society, we need that God of imagination. Because now we're going to go into that second word. Because in inspired by that God of imagination, I want to challenge us not to be overwhelmed and not to avoid this topic because the word is poverty. And poverty is complicated. It's complex. It impacts every facet of a person or a family or a community's life. Too often we'll try to solve one problem, the silver bullet solution. If we can just solve health care or if we can just solve housing, or provide living wages, or respond to the mental health challenges of our day. Oftentimes, one thing leads to another. An illness or a job loss that brings people to our door. Very quickly, that catalyst has snowballed. It has become a housing issue, a transportation issue, a legal issue, toxic stress, and so on. So how do we understand the complicated nature of poverty so that we can do something about this? How do we, inspired by that 70-year legacy that has gone before us, rise to the worthy challenges of our day? Well, there is a powerful framework, the social determinants of health, the conditions in the places where people live and learn and work and play that affect a wide range of their health and quality of life outcomes. And while we call them the social determinants of health, they're also the social determinants of educational attainment and workforce productivity, of quality of life. And that's why we selected this topic, health, poverty, and human dignity, deepening our moral imagination, and why we've selected Father Michael Rozier to lead our discussion this morning. Father Rozier is Assistant Professor at the Department of Health Management and Policy at St. Louis University. After he presents our very own, the Most Reverend Bishop Robert Brennan, the 12th Bishop of the Diocese of Columbus will respond. And now, it is my pleasure to welcome Father Rozier to the podium. Father Thank you very much. It is a privilege to be here. And again, I just want to echo the sentiments um, to be here in person. 
Now, if you, if you look at my, um, at my bio, you will find that uh, my PhD happens to be from a little place north of here in Ann Arbor. <clears throat> very, very grateful that you still welcomed me here. Um, and I was actually also the chaplain for our football and basketball teams there. So even more grateful, I, I, you can take satisfaction in that I was always busiest providing pastoral care the weekend after Thanksgiving. <laughs> so one of, um, one of the things why I, I love talking about this topic, and, and Rachel framed it perfectly, uh, especially with a Catholic audience. In, in Catholic theology, you'll, you'll often hear both and. You know, the, the both and, the imagination and the poverty, Jesus as human and divine, Mary as virgin and mother, uh, the kingdom as already here and not yet. And I'm going to ask you to enter into that both and with me today, because that's what we need to do uh, to really make some movement uh, on, on these topics. It is to hold everything in tension and not to say, oh, well, then I'm just going to go in this direction. Or the, No, we need to go in all directions. And be, with a room this big and a community this large, we can go in all directions, which is, which is wonderful. So um, my reflection today is, is going to be in three parts. I'm going to start with where I think we are called to go. What's our horizon? What's our destination? The second part, I'm going to talk about where we are today, and that third part is going to be connecting the two. How do we get from where we are to where we hope to be? And as we, as we move through this, uh, our, our framing is going to be, uh, there we go, uh, our, our horizon, uh, where we are going, I think is always the kingdom of God. As a people of faith, that is always where we are moving toward. And what is beautiful, and a lot of the stuff that we can talk about this morning and the kind of work that you're doing and the commitments that you have, it can feel overwhelming. One way for it to feel a little less overwhelming is to trust that this is actually the work of God. And we are just cooperating with God's grace. We are doing our part and so we don't need to feel overwhelmed because it's really God's work that is going on in the world, and he's overwhelmed for us. We, we don't have to take that on. Uh, but the, the, the horizon is always going to be the kingdom of God. And if, um, I know, yeah, perfect, thank you. Um, and when, when we talk about the social determinants of health, so my field is healthcare. Uh, I work in health management and policy, um, and I work with Catholic health systems. And so we talk about the social determinants of health. I actually don't use that term all that much anymore. I talk about the social determinants of human dignity because that, that helps us appreciate that it's not just a health outcome. It's an educational outcome. And really, at the core, it is about who we can be as human persons. And so here... You can see I have, human dignity is the core of our moral tradition. It is the core of our social teaching. I'm just taking a, a few quotes. Gaudium et Spes, a document from Vatican II, talks about the fact that, uh, of course, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. 
And that is the heart of what we mean by human dignity. Every person in this room, every person we encounter is imago dei, the image of God in this world. The more we can remind ourselves of that, um, the, the, uh, the more inspired I think we will be for the kind of work that we need to do. Uh, Pope Benedict XVI um, reminded us that there is room for everyone here on this earth. And we, we can often have a, uh, a narrative of scarcity, a narrative of competition, but that is not the narrative of God. God's narrative is always one of abundance, of plenitude, of generosity. And finally, Pope Francis in Laudato Si reminds us that, yes, we can fall victim to our, you know, worse instincts sometimes, but the goodness always overcomes it. And we are always drawn to what are the transcendentals, truth, beauty, goodness. Although I don't think Aquinas names beauty. Pope Francis, uh, you'll see later on that uh, I think John Paul II was more in the school of Aquinas and just in truth and goodness, which is great. Uh, but, but basically, we are, we are moving toward, um, always moving toward God. And human dignity provides the foundation for all the work that we are doing. But the wonderful thing, and here's our first both and uh, of my talk, is that, yes, the individual is imago Dei, is precious, is full of dignity. But we are not atomized individuals. We do not move through this world completely independent of one another. We cannot know who we were created to be. We cannot know the fullness of who God created us to be without our social nature, without how we interact with each other, without how we construct society. It is in, in our relationship that we come to know the fullness of who we are, and the Trinity actually provides this theological insight for us, because the fullness of God is fully known in relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, that we come to know the fullness of divine nature when in relationship. The same, if we are a reflection of God, then we also come to know our fullness, our fullness of nature in relationship, which is why our social arrangements matter so deeply. And this last part, that it is not possible for some to thrive while others are compromised, is a sense of the solidarity that we are bound up together, that our salvations are interconnected. And so when one person's dignity is eroded, it's not that their dignity is eroded and mine is fine. When their dignity is eroded, so is mine and so is yours. And so that is the beauty of the kind of work that Catholic Social Services does is, of course, doing great work to make uh, make situations where people can realize their fullness, but in helping them, it actually helps everyone else realize their fullness as well, whether they're a direct recipient of those benefits or not, because of the social dimension of who we are and how it's constitutive of our human nature. And finally, the last thing you know about where we are going uh, I, I, I love um, U.S. Uh, Catholic history, specifically, uh, I, I did. Uh, my uh, uh, 
degree in sacred theology and the history of Catholic health care, specifically the 19th century women religious and how they made decisions. And what was amazing is they were always finding the places where other people could not or would not go. And that's where they went. And people would say, like, well, there's not a solution there. We, we, we don't know how to do it. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll figure it out. Some, some of the first health insurance programs in the country were Benedictine sisters in Minnesota who basically kind of collected uh, annual um, uh, fees from railroad companies or t- lim- lumber companies, and they created health insurance, essentially, saying, we'll provide care for your employees for the course of the year if you give us some money up front. Now, they just needed money to kind of build their convent and other things, but they also provided health care. It was brilliant. Also, women religious in the, in the Civil War here, so remind, keep in mind, Civil War, this is pre-germ theory. This is before we knew it was microorganisms that caused a lot of, a lot of disease and, and disability. It was before x-rays, before antibiotics. But these women religious essentially were the most effective caregivers during the Civil War because they combined rudimentary medical knowledge with deep compassion. And it's why the soldiers on both sides of the war always wanted women Catholic women religious to be their caregivers because they figured out that actually compassion is an amazing medicine. And if you pair that along with whatever we have, we're going to be better off. There's a beautiful note from President Lincoln uh, to a congregation of women religious thanking them for the care that they had provided to the soldiers. We can look at um, the racial justice issues of the 1960s. We can uh, look at the HIV-AIDS crisis, now hospice care um, it's, it's most regularly women religious in this country who are showing us the ways into places where other people cannot, and it's always rooted in this notion of human dignity. How can we lift other people up so that both they and we are saved? So that's where we are. Where are we going? What is our starting place? Whenever I... Um, talk with my students about the determinants of human dignity or the the determinants of health, I often use this image of a tree. So, you know, uh, in in a month or so, our our leaves will be turning, our our, uh, drives through Ohio and where I am in Missouri will be beautiful. Uh, And we always look at the leaves and we're like, "That, that is just gorgeous. What we don't say is, I bet that has a great root system right? Oh my gosh, I bet the soil that that tree in is spectacular. No, that's not what we do. We look at the leaves, we look at that, we're like, that is gorgeous, that is God's glory right there. Absolutely, both and. Yes, that is absolutely true, and at the same time, what made that possible? It's the soil, it's the deep root system, and that is what we are talking about in terms of determinants of human dignity, It is that root system. It is the education we have received. It is the family systems we have grown up in. It is the food that we have been nourished by. It is the neighborhood in which we have lived on and on and on. That is is the soil, that is the roots that we draw from for our entire lives. And that is our starting place um, in terms of how we are analyzing where we need to go. Because in order to figure out how we get to that kingdom of God, how we cooperate for the fullness, fullness of human dignity, we have to appreciate uh, what is actually going on mechanically in people's lives. And this, 
I think, is our, the image that I would like to start with. Now, uh, the social determinants of health here, this is probably one of only two technical slides in the entire presentation, I promise. But if we look at, and this is at the population level, what determines our health outcomes? What determines our, our life expectancy, our chance of cardiovascular disease, our chance of um, mental illness, all of those things? Well, healthcare, you might think, oh, that, that, that's a pretty big determinant, and I see Mount Carmel up here. Uh, it's not that healthcare is not important. I work with health systems uh, for most of my days, but truthfully, medical care only accounts for 20% of our health outcomes. It's an important 20%, but it's only 20%. Socioeconomic factors account for 40% of our health outcomes. And here's what we're talking about in terms of the education, employment, social support, community safety. This is the kind of bread and butter work of Catholic social services. This is uh, what, what we are... Uh, really focused on in a lot of the work that, that we do across the country. And it's because we know that health outcomes and other outcomes are so dependent upon it. Now, of course, again, this is population level. Um, you, can, you can look at individuals, and there are always going to be individual stories and exceptions, but I'm talking about at the aggregate. This is what predicts how we're doing. And so, if this is the case, then a tremendous amount of our energies ought to be focused on socioeconomic factors. Again, that root system, that soil in which people find themselves. And I, I would also like to note that, you know, in a pie graph, these are discrete buckets. That is not the way our lives work, of course. You know, the, the education that I receive influences my health behaviors, what I eat. Uh, the medical care that I receive influences whether I can work or not in terms of my employment. The physical environment, the environmental quality that I grow up in influences some of my health behaviors. How, so there is absolutely interaction and overlapping realities in all of these things. But I think it's a, it's a helpful um, distillation of um, population-level data to help us understand what we ought to be doing. Now, <clears throat> I need about two things to predict the life expectancy of everyone in this room and everyone in your communities. One of the things that I don't need is your genetic code. We might think that that is a very determinative element of our health, and in some ways it is. There are certain diseases which are very linked to our genetics, but for the most part, again, at the population level in terms of life expectancy, I really need two things. I need your zip code, and I need your credit score. That's it. And that should be very bracing for us. We, we should kind of bristle and, quite frankly, be appalled that our life expectancy is so determined by things like our zip code and our credit score. And so you can see here... Um, between Franklinton and Grandview Heights, nearly a 22-year gap in life expectancy. Four miles apart. This is not unique to Columbus. I give this talk, I, I give a similar talk all over. I, I have no problem pulling up the metro map of wherever I am, and we see this exact same pattern. 
Now, this did not happen by accident. This happened by generations of choices that we are now living the consequences of. And that can be somewhat overwhelming. I prefer to think about it as a tremendous opportunity because if this happened by choice, guess what can reverse it? Choice. We can choose to say we will not accept a 22-year gap in life expectancy in our community. We can choose to structure society differently so that the determinants of health are not so unequally distributed where we live. St. Irenaeus, one of our early church fathers, said that God's glory is the human person fully alive. God's glory is the human person fully alive. Beautiful, right? Well, what does it mean when somebody dies 22 years before they ought to? That is tragic for them as a person. It's also tragic for the divine nature. It's also, if God's glory is that person fully alive and they die decades before giving the fullness of glory for, for 82 years, oh my gosh, what a diminishment and an unnecessary diminishment of God's glory. That's why the mission statement of Catholic Social Services here to care for uh, the poor and vulnerable seniors and families uh, to reach their potential. That's what we're talking about right now, the, the fullness of life, the potential that God wove into our very beings from the very beginning. So, again, this didn't happen at random. It can be reversed. Now, I know that the word sin is not a very popular phrase these days. Uh, I, am a, I am a Jesuit. Uh, we talk about sin and grace all the time, so you're going to get a little dose of sin today. Um, and not like, I'm not going to encourage you to do it. We're going we're gonna to talk about it. Because I, I, I think it's really important to fully appreciate what God is inviting us into is to be crystal clear about what pulls us away from God's vision, what pulls us away from the kingdom, what pulls us away from truth, beauty, and goodness, what pulls us away from our fullest potential. And it's sin. It's our brokenness. And yes, we have it at the individual level, but we have it at the collective level as well. And that's what I would like to focus on today. Uh, And it's uh, St. Pope John Paul II. I'm going to read this in full. Please um, indulge me, because I I think it is so well articulated. Man receives from God his essential dignity and with it the capacity to transcend every social order so as to move toward truth and goodness. But he is also conditioned by the social structures in which he lives, by the education he receives, and by his environment. These elements can either help or hinder his living in accordance with the truth. The decisions which create a human environment can give rise to specific structures of sin which impede the full realization of those who are in any way oppressed by them. So, that is the kind of negative 
framing of this, I put the positive question in there. So if there are structures of sin that oppress us, what are the structures that we can build to create human flourishing? So if there are structures that have been created over time that lead to inadequate education in some communities, that lead to inadequate food security in some communities, that lead to violence in some communities. Okay, so those are structures that have been built up. What, what's the inverse? What are the structures of virtue? What are the structures of grace? How can we build systems that when people are in it, they are more likely to make good decisions and to find the fullness of their flourishing? That's, that's what we are invited into, I think, in terms of our Catholic imagination. What are the structures of virtue that we can be building at this time? And again, it's to reimagine what that soil and root system is going to look like for people. How do we create the conditions in which they just naturally thrive? You don't have to work so hard because there are so many wonderful examples of people who live and have grown up. And the, the, the phrase that you heard twice um, is from Robert Wood Johnson, the conditions in which people uh, live, learn, work, and play. And I like just add pray in there. Live, learn, work, play, and pray. Because I think our parishes are a really important social structure that we are uniquely positioned uh, to use for these kind of structural reimaginings. So I am from a, uh, a small town in southeast Missouri, a town of 4,000 people. Uh, my, ta- uh, my family's been there since 1810. Uh, I love um, the realities of, of rural communities. And I know that this diocese, 23 counties, Uh, I I used Franklin County earlier in terms of life expectancy. We could map up any of the counties in this diocese, but there are also ones that deal with the realities of rural poverty. And I think it's just really important to note that both the problems and the solutions in rural versus urban communities are very different. And to recognize that it's going to take multiple strategies across multiple communities to make this work. Uh, the, the one that kind of comes to mind most readily for me uh, in my own community, it is when, you, when you're trying to uh, meaningfully provide social support for people, and it, it's one thing in an urban environment when people are generally anonymous with the people they encounter, but in my community, the people who need social support are the people, their kids go to school together, they go to church together, They see each other in the grocery store. They see each other in the bank. And there's a level of embarrassment and shame that occurs in rural communities that it's not that it doesn't occur in urban communities, but it is is less palpable and poignant. And so we just have to be aware of those kind of different realities. Transportation is going to be a totally different uh, issue. The the quality of housing questions that we're going to be confronting in rural communities is, is going to be different than urban communities. And so um, it, it's just, I think, important to note some of these differences. And finally, I don't think we can move past the question of where we are right now without talking about the realities of race and racism in this country. And again, a quote from the U.S. Catholic bishops, let the church proclaim to all that the sin of racism defiles the image of God and degrades the sacred dignity of humankind. 
which has been revealed by the mystery of the Incarnation. Let all who know that it is a terrible sin that mocks the cross of Christ and ridicules the Incarnation. So we talk about these structures of sin that have been built up over generations. One of those, and again, this is um, from Columbus itself, we can look at the uh, loan corporation grades that were given when redlining was possible, the redlining districts, the percentage of um, uh, minority communities in certain areas, and what what I study most of the time, health outcomes like stroke prevalence. So we can draw a direct line between health outcomes like stroke, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, all the way back to housing decisions that were made over a half century ago. It's just data. It is just the cold, hard truth of how... um, Things get embedded in our societies, and we then, we get to deal with them. And so, as we contemplate how to change the soil, how to make sure the soil is most nourishing and the root systems are the strongest, we cannot just look at 2021, unfortunately. We have to look at the history that brought us here, and to reconcile ourselves with that reality, and to, again, make new decisions to make the new choices that are going to allow us to not see this difference in stroke prevalence. Like, I want to see this map all white or light pink, the lowest level of prevalence, the the bottom right-hand map. The other thing that we saw very clearly during this pandemic, we can look at infection rates, hospitalization rates, and mortality rates uh, from COVID-19. And there is a very clear difference across race and ethnicity in this country. And that is no accident. It happens because of those overlapping determinants of health that are strongly correlated with with race and ethnicity. And so if we look at some of the major determinants of health that would help you from being infected, hospitalized, or die from COVID, we can look at things like Do you have a job that allows you to stay home if you are exposed or feeling sick? Do you have the size of a house that allows you to quarantine from other members of your household? Are you able to have your groceries delivered to your home? Are you able to secure childcare whenever you are sick or need to stay home or need to go to work? All of these things are these determinants of human dignity, and they are strongly correlated with race and ethnicity in this country. And so the fact that what, what we in public health call pandemic privilege fell along socioeconomic and racial and ethnic lines means that we see these data points in the lower right-hand corner, that we have multiplier effects of infection hospitalization, and mortality across race and ethnicity. And again, this can feel overwhelming. This can feel somewhat depressing. I think we need to let it soak in. I think we need to be affected by it. But we can't stay there. We cannot dwell in that. We cannot cannot get caught in that. Because God is inviting us to something so much more. God is inviting us to the imagination that we talked about, which is how we are going to get there. 
We have several communities, of course, living on the edge, which I'm going to talk about in, in detail at the end, but just to kind of name some of the key communities that we um, need to be paying attention to at this time. So what's our pilgrimage? How do we get from what I just talked about in terms of where we are to that kingdom of God that we talked about at the very, very beginning of this? And that is our moral imagination. Two men were fishing in a river late in the afternoon. They started cooking some fish they had caught. Suddenly they heard the cries of a man being swept down the river. Immediately the men jumped into the river, swam out to the man, and were gradually able to pull him ashore. As they, were, they, as they were on shore catching their breath, they heard the cries of a woman being swept down the river. They jumped back into the river, made their way out to the woman, and slowly brought her to shore. They were exhausted but happy to have saved both people. Then they heard the cries of a child being swept downstream. One of the men started back into the water to get the child. The other held back. Aren't you going to save the child, asked the first you go get the child, responded the second. I'm going to go upstream to find out why so many people are falling into the river. This is the both and that I'm talking about. It is not that both of them are walking upstream. Somebody needs to dive in and save the child. And at the same time, somebody needs to walk upstream and figure out what is going on. The what is going on is what I just talked about the structures of sin, the soil, the determinants of human dignity that we have unequally distributed because of our mentality of scarcity and competition when God is a God of abundance. So, now, my contention is that imagination has been the key element throughout salvation history. This is the thing that has made the difference. And so we can think of Abraham looking up in the stars in the sky thinking, so God promised me that my descendants are going to be as, as uh, multitudinous as the stars in the sky and the sand uh, on the shore? I'm childless. I have to move across this peninsula. Well, his task was not a technical one. His task was, can I imagine a different world? Can I imagine a place in which this is actually going to occur? We can think of the task that Moses was given in terms of moving from uh, Egypt to the promised land. You might think, well, it was, a, it was a cartographical exercise, 40 years of negotiating the desert. Well, no, that's, that's actually not true. I mean, that is true. But the chief task was one of convincing these people that there was going to be a land of milk and honey at the end. Keep faith. We're going to get there. This is what it's going to look like. You're, you are the chosen people. It was a task of imagination. Or you can think of, the, think of the disciples that Jesus called, these fishermen. And Jesus said, come with me. I'm going to teach you to catch men now. Now, it wasn't a technical training program. He didn't have, it wasn't uh, helping them figure out exactly how to preach or how to heal or how to choose t towns. Their chief task was to actually believe that they could be apostles, be disciples, be leaders of a new movement of faith. Oh my gosh, what, what a huge leap that had to be for these fishermen. 
The technical piece was secondary. The primary piece was imagining a life that didn't seem possible, but actually was God's invitation to them. And that's what I'm suggesting our core spiritual task is. It's not that the technical pieces are unimportant. The technical work is going uh, to be essential if we are going to kind of move into this place of human flourishing. But my contention is that it is secondary to the point of moral imagination. And that we as people of faith have to be the ones to lead people, to lead communities, to say, this is what's possible. This is the vision we've been offered. Do we believe it? Can we go it? Can we move in that direction? So, pull up this piece of scripture with which you are probably familiar. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now you know that a priest happened by, left him there. You know the Levite happened by, left him there. You know a Samaritan passed by, put oil and wine on his bandages, wrapped him up, took him to the innkeeper, gave the innkeeper two denarii, and said, take care of this man while I'm away. If you spend any more, I'll compensate you for whatever you spend. And Jesus said, which one of these people showed mercy? And they said, which one of these people was a neighbor? And they said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So these are the kind of uh, narratives that we are rightly inspired by and I think are really important. Now, my work is public health, and let me tell you a, a parable from my work. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he made it there without incident. That's because the men who would have robbed him had employment that carried good benefits, and the streets were well lit. (laughs) Go and do likewise. I admit that is far less inspiring. And And it's because it wasn't inspired by the Holy Spirit, like the first one from the Gospel of Luke. And that is one of our challenges, quite frankly, in terms of moral imagination, that when we do this thing well, and there's the problem with public health and the pandemic, quite honestly, when we do it well, we don't see the consequences. We don't, we, we see nothing because people are doing well. People are thriving. It's like, oh, this is, this is what it's supposed to be. No, it's because of the hard work that went in to creating that situation, It didn't just happen. People worked incredibly hard. People used tremendous resources to make sure that that person wasn't robbed and beaten, to make sure that person lived a full life, that they died in their 80s, that they were educated, that they had food to eat, that they didn't need to walk through the hospital doors. That is the the tough task, quite frankly, of moral imagination in the both and that we care for the people who are falling into the river, and walking upstream to find out why they're falling in the river. But if there's any group that can do it, I think it's us. Now, one of our most important parts of our moral tradition are the corporal works of mercy, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, clothing the naked, visiting the sick. And so we do those things, and those are really important. And here's another both and. It is the works of mercy, but I also believe it's the policies of mercy. So, for I was hungry, and you ensured I did not live in a food desert. I was thirsty, and you guaranteed my tap water was safe to drink. A stranger and your laws allowed me to find asylum. 
Now, the people, the policymakers, people who are constructing new, new ways for us to, to build society, don't get the kind of acclaim, I think, whenever they embed mercy and kindness and justice into laws. But it is just as essential as the corporal works of mercy that, that I think we're much better at recognizing and applauding. And again, it's not one or the other. It cannot be one or the other. Because there are people in immediate need right now. But if we can prevent those people, the next generation, from being in need, that is incumbent upon us to do. And so it's holding together these corporal works of mercy and creating these new policies of mercy within our tradition. And it is breathing with both lungs. Because justice and charity are not separate. They are, they are not parallel paths. They are constitutive and inseparable from one another, as Pope Benedict tells us. And in fact, justice is the minimum measure of charity. Justice is the minimum measure of charity. And so if we know that disease and um, degradation of dignity has a preferential option for the poor, we know that we have great institutional structures in the church then we use Jesus as our truest moral code, who not only cared for individuals, but challenged the context, the environment, the social situations in which people were living. And so Jesus, of course, always our moral model, did both. And so we are called to do both. And what is wonderful about the Catholic Church is what other organization has health care, social services, parish life, education. I mean, we are a natural wraparound service. We encounter everybody at nearly every moment of their lives. And so if we can leverage the reality, and of course we have wonderful uh, other than Catholic collaborators, but we are truly privileged in the way that our, uh, our church has been built up over time, that if we can identify somebody who is uh, elderly and who is fragile in our healthcare system and can notify a parish whenever they're being discharged, who can notify their social services that they might need uh, meals delivered. I mean, that kind of networking among our institutions uh, is something that no other organization has the ability to do. And I know that in my talk with Catholic Social Services, the information system, I'm obsessed with IT structures, and so like the information platform that can happen between our organizations to make that communication for our most vulnerable more effective, I know is something that you are working on and investing in, that is incredibly exciting, and you can be a national leader in that reality to show how we as an institutional church can respond both to the people in need uh, more effectively and change the social context in which people are um, living, working, learning, playing, and praying. So just kind of a quick summary here that our horizon is always realizing the fullness of the human person, that God's glory is the human person fully alive, that we cannot enter into this work without recognizing the sinfulness, which we bring as individuals and we bring as a community, as a society that has built up over time, but that our moral imagination, which is, of course, a gift from God, will always, always outpace any sinfulness that we have. 
we have to believe that God's grace, the virtue that has been woven into us from the very beginning, will always exceed any kind of brokenness. And that is exactly the kind of work that I think and vision that we can provide not only internally uh, to the Catholic community, but to the community at large. And so I'm just very grateful uh, for the work you are already doing and the work you will be doing and for the invitation to join you this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Father Rocha. You have inspired us, no? It really inspired us. Thank you. I do thank you for framing the discussion in terms of human dignity. Right now, um, as we look at the reality of the last 18 months or so, it's not only about COVID. There just seems to be so much more. We find ourselves in a society that is becoming more and more politically fractured. And the arguments are becoming more and more uh, vicious, if you will, and more and more divisive. And so as we face some of our deepest and heaviest challenges, the temptation is almost always to tear apart. And yet... One of the things that we as Catholics know in our hearts, whether or not we always are faithful to it, one of the things we know is that at the core of everything is something that you said, that each and every one of us is created in the image and likeness of God, and that respect for human dignity at every moment and every stage of human life is really the thread that ties it all together. When things end up being cast in political terms and sometimes different names are ascribed to different approaches to problems, sometimes in um, derogatory ways, sometimes in faddish kind of ways, Something gets lost. What is constant is that sense of human dignity. And that's at the core of who we are. And that becomes the core of how we respond, or how we need to respond, as a Catholic church, as a Catholic community, to many of the needs that surround us. And so we see it in our approach, first of all, to the big thing that's on so many of our minds, the response to this pandemic. What is necessary for human dignity? To the reality of the violence that plagues our community that we see so much here, right here in our own midst. To the brutal reality of racism to the challenges of meeting the needs of people who have come to our countries and our country and to, and to, to those 
who live here in so many different communities and to immigration in general and refugees who are fleeing, to respect the dignity of those who serve and protect. One of the things I found myself saying in so many different contexts is that challenge to look into the eyes of one another and see that true image of God because that person is created in God's own image and likeness. One of the kind of informal things that happened over the last year is we sort of formed a little bit of a Catholic collaboration for the common good just so that we could talk about some of these issues that I just named. And so some of through the diocese and different agencies such as Catholic Social Services, all through uh, Social Concerns Office, some of the other agencies as well, working together with Mount Carmel Hospital and with the Dominican Sisters of Peace, we've been looking to brainstorm about some of these things and find ways that we can respond and walk with people, accompany. I have to tell you something. You are amazing. You're amazing for being here today and for what brings you here today. Certainly for your support of Catholic Social Services and all of the different works that it does. Many of the things are known to us because they're right here in Franklin County and have to do with basically the, the city realities, but we're not limited to those city realities. Thank you, Father Michael, for raising up the issues of the, our rural communities. It comprises a large swath of our diocesan concerns. A lot of our people live in our rural communities. And Catholic Social Services is there. You are amazing. And I, I, it, it hits me as we're standing out there and you're coming up the escalator and I'm seeing, I was going to say face after face, but modeling after Rachel, I'll say eyes after eyes. <laughs> of you who in some of our community leaders, other agencies, many of our industries, people who are serving on our boards, people who are maybe just starting to get more involved. And I, I, I'm just overwhelmed by the talent that's in this room and the generosity that wants to take that talent to enhance human dignity in the name of Jesus Christ and through his church. You are amazing. 
struck by that as I go around. Struck by it over and over again. I'm struck by the ways that so many of our Catholic agencies, Catholic Social Services is a great example. Far from shutting down, actually geared up in this last year and a half. Sure, we had to do things differently. We had to do things very, very differently, but you did. In powerful, powerful ways and impacting lives where it mattered the most. You know, when I was down south, I was in Portsmouth for some parish meetings, which were not always about the easiest things in the world, and one person got up and he said, one of the things that this has taught us is that we've had to learn not only what it means to go to church, but actually what it means to be the church. Thank you. That's exactly who you are and what you do. Ah, but there's more. There's much more. We realize the challenges that are right before us and that probably lie as we continue going that road to Jericho. There may be others. Father Michael, Father Rochelle, I can't say it enough how inspired I am by your words today. And if I could focus in on the ways that you raise up our hope and our imagination. You did a phenomenal job of doing that for, for, for all of us. Whereas you can look at some of these things and easily become overwhelmed. You remind us that maybe some of the severity of the problem, some of the root causes which should, on the one hand, appall us, are also the very reasons why we're in a position to do something about it. And you have sparked our imagination in a powerful, powerful way. I promise you, I promise you that your words here today will affect many of our conversations not only at Catholic Social Services, but in different boards, in our different agencies, and, and your stories, your images. I love that the, the, the tree with the roots. Um, they are going to inspire us as we seek to do the work of Jesus Christ right here in the 23 counties of, of the Diocese of Columbus. God bless you in your work and help you to continue the good things that you are doing. Thank you for sharing that with us today. And now, if, it, if I may, don't we owe a great debt of thanks to Rachel? Rachel always, always inspires us, too, by the way she serves. And, and thank you for your capability, for, for the wonderful ways that you lead Catholic Social Services. But thank you, too, for your generous spirit. You bring joy to something like this, and that just animates all of us, doesn't it? 
So thank you, Rachel.